Hello, you're listening to The World Ahead. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. Over the coming weeks, this future-gazing podcast series will focus on the key themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions and analysis in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is out now. Next year will be the third year of the coronavirus pandemic, and for the well-vaccinated, wealthier countries of the world, the chances are it will be a vast improvement on previous years. This is largely down to the extraordinarily rapid and widespread vaccine rollout, and the development of new drugs that minimise the severity of COVID-19 symptoms and reduce the number of deaths. But in countries that are poorer, less well-vaccinated, or both, the devastation of the virus will continue, resulting in a growing disparity between rich and poor countries, something we've long seen with other diseases. Here's The Economist's other deputy editor, Edward Carr, who oversees our COVID-19 coverage. It is a fact that pandemics do not die. Instead, they fade away. And that's what COVID-19 is likely to do in 2022. There will be local and seasonal flare-ups, especially in chronically under-vaccinated countries. And the world will still need to watch out for new variants, such as the recent Omicron. But one thing that will change is how the virus is perceived. This infection is becoming endemic. David Heyman is a professor of infectious disease epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. It's becoming endemic in countries where it's been causing serious illness and death, and it's becoming endemic in other countries where it might not have been causing such serious illness and death, such as Sub-Saharan Africa. Because the infection is with us, and it's in all countries, and it's taking its own routes of transmission into those countries. And it's how we tackle the infections, the outbreaks and the global vaccination rollout that will determine what next year looks like for COVID-19. We've looked really carefully at the vaccines that we have, what's happening with the virus, the pandemic itself. And we've established goals for 2022 with targets to reach those goals. Kate O'Brien is the director of the Department of Immunisation, Vaccines and Biologicals at the World Health Organization. The goals are really about making sure that the health consequences of this virus are addressed and minimised and that that in turn lets our economies and our way of living to return to a new normal. The targets that we have set are for 40% vaccination in every country by the end of 2021 and by mid-2022 to have 70% vaccination in every country. If we reach this target, it means that most of the world is likely to return to normal, at least in the post-pandemic normal. But behind this prospect lies a potential problem in countries that haven't been able to reach the vaccine levels of the richest countries. Chitra Nagarajan is a writer and academic researcher focusing on human rights and peace building in Central and Western Africa, and more recently has been working on the ground to analyse the effects of COVID-19. In many of the countries that I work in, the primary impacts of COVID have been more on the economic and social side, partly because in places like Nigeria, The government was very quick in imposing movement restrictions. 
So the Nigerian government had learned from Ebola and other pandemics in the region, so had a good pandemic preparedness plan, which was executed much quicker and more efficiently than I would say countries like the UK. Um, and this has been really good for preventing the spread of COVID to some extent, but has been disastrous for people's lives in other ways. I actually did some research in Northeast Nigeria on this, and people would tell me over again that they had so many issues to be concerned of. And they were saying, you know, I survived Boko Haram. What is COVID compared to that? And you know, in Nigeria, every time COVID cases start rising, both the federal government and the state governments consider bringing back restrictions, but there is such a high level of outcry against the idea of bringing back restrictions. And the government just can't do that. It's just, it's just not possible because having movement restrictions in place for two weeks means that you're not earning incomes for two weeks, which means that you cannot feed yourself and your family for that time. So in Nigeria, um, there was an initial 4 million doses of the COVID vaccine. That means 2 million people can be vaccinated. And this is for a country of over 200 million. Now, there have been many more doses given to Nigeria since then. And this pattern is replicated in many parts of the African continent and in the global south. And it's a huge problem. We do not have the vaccines going to the people who need them most. We have a situation where not even all health workers are vaccinated. And so there is a risk then of COVID's really spreading in high numbers and the people who are charged with taking care of patients not being vaccinated and COVID spreading further. It's a harsh reality that a divide could exist in the world next year between countries that perceive COVID-19 as just another disease such as polio or influenza and those countries who fear the death rates that are associated with these kinds of outbreaks. But what can be done to stop this happening with this pandemic? Kate O'Brien from the WHO. Countries that have high vaccine coverage already really need to take some urgent actions to assure that doses they have access to are being deployed to low coverage countries. So that means that they're swapping their place in line for delivery of more vaccine um, and that they're donating vaccines to the global mechanism COVAX and regional mechanisms like AVAT, which is serving Africa, so that the countries that are still far behind actually have access to doses. So that's what high coverage countries can do. Manufacturers need to prioritize their supply to COVAX. We know that at this point, manufacturers are making somewhere in the order of 1.5 billion doses of vaccine a month. And those doses need to be prioritized for the countries that are still very far behind in terms of their access. And I think high-income countries especially have learned the lesson through the Delta variant that protecting within one country is not something that's going to work because the virus doesn't recognize borders. Increasingly, therefore, people will die from COVID-19 because they were never protected by vaccines or they cannot afford medicines. Sometimes people will remain vulnerable because they refuse to have a jab when offered one, a failure of health education. The onset of the Omicron variant proves that COVID-19 is not quite done yet, but there is optimism that it will no longer be a life-threatening disease for most people in the developed world, that is. David Heyman again. 
If you look at what's happening today as population immunity increases, there continues to be transmission of the virus, either in those people who were infected previously or in people who were vaccinated, but the illness that it causes is less severe. I would hope that that continues in the future, but the one trump card on all this is what will happen if a new variant develops that will escape vaccine protection. But we have hopes because the new RNA platforms, the mRNA platforms to develop vaccines, can insert new RNA into their vaccines in a very short period of time, they say within a six-week period, and then begin production of those new vaccines, which would then need to be uh, clinically trialed and moved ahead. Kate O'Brien from the WHO. So where we'll be at the end of 2022, I think we're going to have some new vaccines that have different performance characteristics. I think we'll have vaccines that are easier to deploy. They may be vaccines that require less stringent cold chain requirements. I think we're going to also have a lot more information about who needs additional doses and under what circumstances. And I also think we're going to learn a lot more about for those people who have had immunity because they've been infected with the virus, what are the characteristics of their needs for vaccine? I also think that we're going to have broader use of treatments for COVID so that, again, um, it, it is not nearly the mortal disease that it is now. And I think we're going to probably have a greater return um, to a, a more normal way of living. And I certainly hope we're also in a place where we see the economies, especially of countries that have really suffered from an economic perspective, recovering. With me now are Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor, and Slavea Chankova, our healthcare correspondent. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, Tom. Slavea, perhaps we should start with Omicron. There's lots of uncertainty at this point. What are the key things that we hope to find out in the next few weeks? We're really hoping to find out, first and foremost, just how much Omicron can infect people who are vaccinated or who have had COVID already, as well as people who've had neither, of course. If indeed Omicron is better than Delta at infecting us, then it looks very likely that it will spread around the world and perhaps eventually replace Delta. Okay, and then the other factor is whether it actually is posing a greater danger to health. Is it possible that it might be a variant that spreads more easily but actually produces milder symptoms? And if that was true, wouldn't that be good news? We will need a a bit more time to find out whether it causes more severe illness just because uh, hospitalization and death tracks infection by, by several weeks. So there is quite a bit of time that we need to wait for to see what happens in hospitals and then for scientists to tally the numbers to be able to tell how dangerous this virus is compared to Delta. But yes, the best case scenario is that this turns out to be something very specific to South Africa's context and population. So Omicron doesn't really spread in other places the way it's spreading in South Africa. And we have precedent for this. We've seen it happen with the beta variant, which caused a big COVID wave in South Africa last winter. But that variant didn't really take hold anywhere else. So that could happen with Omicron too. 
Natasha, that's the sort of the rosy view. What's the worst case scenario here? The worst case scenario is that Omicron evades a great deal of the existing immunity we have in the world, whether we've got that from pre-existing infections or from vaccines. And this could drive a huge wave of infection around the world, hospitalizations, overwhelming hospital systems, just what we've seen before. That's a really worst case scenario. And also that we need an Omicron specific vaccine. And again, even though we could develop one quite quickly, I would anticipate that because most of these would be mRNA vaccines because they move fastest, that there would be a scramble again for Omicron-specific vaccines. So that's the worst case scenario. And that's the scenario in which we have to revaccinate lots of people. And that could be with just a booster for an Omicron-specific booster, or it could be two new Omicron jabs. Now, I don't think that's likely to happen. I mean, we've heard some conflicting accounts of what we think is going to happen in the face of vaccines. But I think the clearest thing we can say is that up until now, all of the vaccines have done okay with all of the variants in preventing hospitalizations and deaths in the sense that you do get this protection from these vaccines. And so when we're talking about waning immunity, we tend to be mostly talking about immunity to catching the disease and getting a little bit sick or just not at all. So I think we need to sort of, again, wait and see. But I think it's going to be far from that worst case scenario for sure. Okay. Now, meanwhile, not in production yet, but in development are some interesting new kinds of vaccines, which probably won't be deployed in 2022, but are coming down the pike. What sorts of things can we expect in the sort of future of COVID vaccines? Well, what's been developed and may or may not come this year or next are things like freeze-dried versions of the Pfizer vaccine. And the great thing about this is if you can freeze-dry it and then rehydrate it at the end, you don't need these cold chains that we've had to set up to transport this vaccine around the world. So that would be an amazing development. They're doing trials at the moment of a freeze-dried vaccine, and I'm just waiting to hear results from that. There's also been quite a lot of innovation with regards to delivery of vaccines. And so there are needle-free patches being developed they're actually little spikes they're tiny little spikes and you put this what's a plaster effectively on your skin and that will deliver a vaccine that's again in trials also intranasal vaccines as well and you know the point about them is that they kind of increase our options and they could make it much easier to vaccinate the world The only issue at the moment, of course, again, is Omicron. And if it does turn out that Omicron is a serious threat, some of these firms may need to update the vaccine that they're using as well. But if not, then perhaps we could see some of these innovations and delivery arrive sooner rather than later. That's very good news. So, Slavea, coming back to you, it's fair to say that we've got all these tools we didn't have two years ago. So even if Omicron does turn out to be worse news than expected, we're not back at square one here, are we? We are absolutely not back at square one. As Natasha said, most scientists expect that the vaccines we have now will protect to a high degree against severe illness. And that's the most important thing, really. And prior infection from COVID probably will, too. The protection may be a bit less then it is against Delta, but it probably will still be there. And of course, we also have the drugs that have dramatically changed what happens to you if you're a vulnerable person and get COVID or end up in hospital. There are drugs that can be given at any stage of the disease. 
And some of the newer drugs, the antivirals, are not yet widely available, but they will be soon. So things are going to look much better next year. The problem, of course, is to what extent, how quickly they can reach poor countries. Thank you both. In a moment, we'll look at how mRNA technology used in some COVID vaccines could be used to fight other diseases. But first, a quick reminder. If you want unlimited access to The Economist app and website, or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, you need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. One of the highlights of 2021 has been the rapid rollout of coronavirus vaccines, and in particular those based on new mRNA technology, which have proved to be very effective. There are high hopes that this technology can be applied to other diseases. Natasha, how can we expect to see the use of mRNA-based therapies develop in 2022, and what other diseases are being targeted? Well, there's a wide range of diseases being targeted, but if you look at the BioNTech uh, pipeline, you'll find a huge focus on cancer. And the idea that the owners of this firm had was really to trigger the production of material in the body that will create antibodies against cancers. So they're essentially working on cancer vaccines. The issue here, though, is, you know, although everyone thinks that mRNA is sort of, you know, a miracle that's going to transform drug development almost immediately, I'd caution on a couple of things. First of all, cancer vaccines are not a new idea. And over decades, we've been trying and failing to make them. Now, I don't think we should underestimate the determination of the two scientists behind BioNTech, and they have a lot of cash at hand. So if anyone's going to make this work, I'm sure they will. But more broadly, there are challenges that actually lay ahead of mRNA. And, you know, mRNA is a very large molecule, it's inherently unstable, and it's sort of prone to degradation. And so you have always had this problem of getting it into the body. Now, With regards to vaccines, you don't have to get much of it in to trigger a response that's large enough to protect against the disease. But if you're thinking about treating other diseases, then often you have to get larger quantities of what's a therapeutic amount of a treatment into the body. And so if you're giving the mRNA and expecting the body to manufacture large quantities of a protein, then it may be that there's quite a lot of development work yet ahead for these sorts of therapies. And I think if you look back at where Moderna was, Moderna started out hoping to be a drug development firm using mRNA, and they weren't having a great deal of success. And in fact, they had sort of lost their way until COVID came along. And of course, the technology is just very suitable for vaccines. I'm obviously very optimistic that in the longer term, mRNA is going to form the basis of lots of incredibly successful drug therapies, but I don't think we've made all the advances that we need. What about other mRNA vaccines? Because that's also an area where other diseases are being targeted using new vaccines based on this technology, aren't they? I think it's fair to say that as far as vaccines go, mRNA will help trigger a sort of golden age of vaccines. And now's the time when all of these firms are going to try doing mRNA vaccines for all sorts of things. I mean, one of the most exciting developments to my mind is that BioNTech has started working on a malaria vaccine. And that's really exciting because 
although we have just started to have success with malaria vaccines, the efficacy is still really low. Just imagine how transformative that would be if we could have a really efficacious malaria vaccine. There's going to be flu vaccines, RSV vaccines, lots and lots of different vaccines using this technology. So yeah, it's quite an exciting time for vaccinology. Now, Slaveo, another thing that's going to happen in 2022 is we're going to start seeing some of the results from research into long COVID. What sort of things can we expect to learn about long COVID in the coming year? We'll have, for one, better knowledge about what the biological mechanism is for the most debilitating symptoms like brain fog and breathlessness. There will be some tests to measure objectively what is going on. Are you short of breath because of damage in your lungs or in your blood vessels, for example? Do you have markers of chronic inflammation in your blood? Knowing that will help doctors choose the right treatment. And that could be among the things that we already have on the pharmacy shelf. And it will help develop new treatments because then you will be able to measure their effect on what's happening in the body more objectively than just asking people how they feel, which, of course, is important as well. So I'm highly optimistic that in 2022, things are going to look very different for long COVID treatment. Now, one possibility is that the work that's been done and the resources that have been thrown at diagnosing and treating long COVID could also benefit people with other long-term conditions. What sorts of things are we talking about there? Well, there are many similar conditions, similar to long COVID, that have mysterious causes, no treatment for now. For example, chronic Lyme disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, complications from the flu, which manifest very similarly to long COVID, all of those will benefit from the research on long COVID for sure. And it's probably a fair guess that what causes them, it has a lot in common with some of the things that cause long COVID, which of course are maybe different in different people. It is very clear now that long COVID is not one disease. It's actually several different conditions depending on on the person. Okay, so there could be benefits for sufferers of other conditions there. And then we could also have things like malaria vaccines and potentially new cancer treatments. It sounds to me like there could be something of a COVID dividend happening here. Overall, has the pandemic accelerated progress in medicine or has the focus on COVID diverted attention from other diseases? Natasha, where do you think we come out on that? Well, I think yes to both of those. And so, yes, absolutely, it's diverted attention from other diseases. You just need to look at the kind of backlogs for elective services surgery in Britain. But beyond that, we have seen a kind of massive digital transformation, certainly in this country and and perhaps in others too, whereby we're using telemedicine more, we're sharing health records, we're making use of health data to a great extent. And actually, we've also leveraged in Britain, for example, our health system to do much more clinical research. And you just need to think of the trials that discovered dexamethasone as a really effective COVID treatment that happened here. It was utilising our clinical networks and our ability to sort of harness the NHS. And we've also engaged people in using digital technology, whether it's an app where you record how well you are and what your symptoms are. And then more broadly, we have learned how to create and modify vaccines really quickly. And then CEPI, which is the group that does epidemic preparedness, they've got a big programme now to sort of do some of the preparatory work for lots of other diseases that have pandemic potential. So I think all in all, at a research level, we've done incredibly well. 
Another example that springs to mind, actually, I think we mentioned this in our coverage earlier this year, is that just the way that clinical trials are conducted now has been completely transformed and digitised and modernised. And even after the pandemic, no one's going to want to go back to the old, slow way of doing things, are they? Slavea, do you see any other examples of this COVID dividend? I do. And I agree with Natasha that there have been dividends, but also, to some extent, COVID has diverted attention from other diseases, uh, notably in developing countries, we've seen a backlog of vaccination among children for the routine jabs that they get every year. For the COVID dividend, one thing that I would add is just the advancements in diagnostics. So we're seeing, you know, these rapid tests that we can do at home or tests we can buy in the pharmacy that are, you know, highly accurate. All the focus on COVID have really moved forward that field. So those technologies will definitely be used for other diseases. Finally, if I were to speak to you both this time next year, where do you think things will stand with the pandemic? Natasha, you first. Oh, this is a difficult one because of Omicron. I'm an optimist, though, and I think mostly we're going to be trying to remember how bad things were. I don't think we are going to be on the tail end of a fifth and sixth wave of COVID that has caused similar levels of devastation as the last two years. I think it will be better in 2022. Great. What do you think, Slavea? I agree with Natasha. It will definitely be better. I think by then, pretty much every country in the world would have had several waves of COVID. Vaccination would have been widespread, you know, at least one or two doses uh, for most people in the world, including developing countries. So you will have this you know, layer of immunity. So, you know, even if reinfections occur, hopefully they will be milder. So hospitals will not struggle. So things are going to look much, much better than they did in the first two years of the pandemic. COVID may not yet be quite the endemic ordinary disease that it will eventually become. That may take a few more years, but life will be looking much better than it does now. Great. Well, I hope you're right. Thank you very much, Slavea and Natasha. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about these stories and other themes and trends for the coming year in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2022. And we'd love to hear your views so we can find out what you're enjoying and make more of it. So please head over to economist.com slash worldaheadsurvey and let us know what you think. That's economist.com slash worldaheadsurvey. This podcast was produced by Simon Jarvis and the executive producer was Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>